Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 237 with Dr. Carmen Simon. I think you will love what Carmen has to share because I sure did back in episode 11. We had her once and it's time for some more. She's got new research, more insights about being memorable, particularly with stories, what makes them great. So you'll learn one, the three components of a good story. Two, why causation in a story can be both sexy and tricky at the same time, and why relatable emotions are more important than strong emotions. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, you can find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F237. And while at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some of our great resources. One I'll point you to today is the Gold Nugget email list. So if you're listening to this podcast, you wish you could take notes, but you're running, you're driving, you're indisposed. Well, we take those notes for you. We send them to your inbox each morning. There is a new guest, the most actionable summarized tidbits that you can read in under two minutes. So that's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com or you can text NUG, that's N-U-G, to 444-999 to sign up that way. Now, here is Carmen's story. Dr. Carmen Simon is a cognitive neuroscientist and founder of Memzi. She has applied the latest neuroscience research findings to deliver workshops, design, and consulting services. Carmen is a published author and frequent keynote speaker at conferences in the U.S., Canada, Europe, and Asia. She holds doctorates in instructional technology and cognitive psychology and uses her knowledge to offer business professionals a flashlight and a magnet, one to call attention to what's important in a message, and the other to make it stick to the audience's brain so they can act on it. Carmen's brain science coaching helps business professionals motivate listeners and stand out from too much sameness in the industry. Here's Carmen. Carmen, welcome back to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. And welcome back, everyone. Well, it's so fun. There's only been about three guests who have done, well, exactly three, I believe, who have made a repeat appearance. So welcome. It's cool to have you in the club here. Thank you so much. And you know, a repetition is a mother of memory. So um, <laughs> <laughs> repeated exposure, we get to make some uh, statements that people remember. Oh, that is well played. You know, you know, Skype just informed me that your birthday is on New Year's Day. Oh, I wonder how it got that information. Um, no, it's I'm actually a, a equally a cool birthday. I'm a Halloween baby. No kidding. Yeah. Well, baby, you just said, forget this, Skype. I'm not telling you my birthday. I'm filling in 0101. <laughs> Yes, yes. And since we're linking this to the concept of memory, false memories are uh, <laughs> very, uh, yeah, very much of a cautionary topic for all of us. Well, I was intrigued because our baby, the due date is January 1st. Oh, there you go. Always at the crossroads for new beginnings. That's nice. So I guess you're unlikely to share a birthday with our child, but um, yeah. <laughs> you're still close in our hearts. I mean, it's so sweet of you to ask for a wedding photo. And I sent you one very belatedly as well, along with all of my thank you notes, which are very belated. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And congratulations once again. What beautiful pictures. Oh, thank you. And I just learned that you were once an interpreter at the UN. Uh, Could you tell us a bit about that experience, that story? What a great job to reminisce on. It wasn't the Nicole Kidman type. But operating in in similar environments, Uh, at the time, there was the Bosnia war going on, if you imagine, um, remember the uh, 
embargo that was placed over Bosnia. So the group that I was assigned to was constantly monitoring those borders, and we would constantly do these uh, Danube patrols. And I got to work with a lot of CIA and uh, FBI agents. It was an intriguing part of my life. What I retained from it, speaking of uh, memory, is that when memory is concerned, culture plays such a huge role because all of us have such different mental models through which we process our reality. So I'm sure that all of our listeners have a different mental model as to how you used to spend your Christmases, since we're talking about uh, Christmas before our uh, show. And what your Christmas used to look like was very different than mine. What's the traditional Christmas for you, Pete? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, midnight mass, which is actually like at 10 p.m. or so, and snickerdoodle cookies. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. So if we're doing the show to impart with our audiences some practical guidelines on how to stay on other people's memory, which is at the center of my research, What I remember from my interpreter day is that it was much easier to translate and be able to stay accurate to those people's memories the more that I understood their mental models. So to the extent that I uh, got to be in somebody's shoes from Germany or somebody's shoes from um, Romania or somebody's shoes from France, the translation and the the accuracy of those memories was much sharper. Now, which languages were you interpreting? I was interpreting uh, English and uh, French. Now, remember, my roots go back to Romania, so that's another language that uh, would belong in there. And some I could play in some Italian in the good old days. So those were the languages that were operated back then at the borders. Well, that's impressive with all those languages. That's another feather in your cap as memory expert. <laughs> yeah, the, it's very humbling because as I reflect on what makes something memorable, Sensory stimulation is definitely one of the variables that you can use to stay on people's minds. And when you translate something, you can stay on the surface or you can go a little bit deeper in order to understand what you're talking about. And I'm noticing that a lot of people forget things simply because we do stay on the surface all the time. I'm I'm working on some presentations with some um, executives um, just this week, and they're asking me to create slides for them that express things like, business optimization or an improved sales model. And unless you get into those people's shoes, very much like we were doing back then in our interpreting days for France or for England or for for Germany, it's very difficult to come up with something that is fresh and stimulating our senses. Because if you just go to, uh, let's just say, iStock photo and you type in sales optimization, what do you get? Yeah, you get those arrows pointing up and people shaking hands because a new deal has been closed. But how memorable are those? (laughs) iStock photo makes me think of the first thing that comes to mind is sort of people dressed up in their business formal wear and suits, just like sprinting around a racetrack. (laughs) Oh, those are, yes. I don't know. They go from the racetrack to the top of the mountains. I'm sure you've seen those. They're not dressed right. (laughs) (laughs) At a blank computer screen and just getting very excited. Yeah. Now, so since we last spoke, you started your own company. You've gone solo. It's kind of like Justin Bieber or something uh, out of NSYNC. You got your own company now. It's Memzy. And what's Memzy all about? Memzy is all about using brain science research to help organizations create memorable content. So if somebody is reflecting on their own messages and they're thinking, boy, you're going to have a hard time expressing this and staying on people's minds then it's very useful to look at evidence-based guidelines to see what you can do 
in a more precise kind of way, because surely you may have some techniques that you're using right now to create something that's memorable, but are you sure that those render dividends or is it, are you using those techniques simply because they may have worked in the past? Oh, intriguing, intriguing. So, well, now we're back in episode 11 if folks want to check out the original conversation that we had. And so there might be a couple things repeated, which is just fine for memory, as you've made clear. But I also kind of want to chart a little bit of new territory. So I understand that you've got some recent research about what it is within stories that make them more memorable than perhaps other stories. I do. I just got so tired of hearing people saying stories are memorable all the time. Like whenever people talk about memory and you tell them, hey, it's good to make something memorable, they immediately say, shouldn't you share a story? And of course, the intuitive answer is yes, definitely share a story. But just because you do, don't think that that story will always be memorable or will always be memorable long term. So through the research I did is just that. I invited some people to first submit a series of stories. And I asked them to complete the sentence, uh, I will never forget, and then fill in the blank. And some people went on for a few paragraphs. Some people went on for longer. Some people went professional. Some people went personal. Where do you think most of the people went, though, personal or professional? I'm guessing personal. Yeah, yeah. most of the uh, the people who submitted their stories uh, went to a personal space. And that was intriguing to me as a finding, too, by the way, because when your audiences are going to recollect their memories, and hopefully you are in there somewhere, they're going to reach for the memory that comes to their minds more easily, that comes to their minds without much effort. And our personal memories quite often are probably a lot more effortless than the professional ones to recollect. Intriguing. And so then what did you notice in terms of like the themes or patterns associated with the stories that folks will never forget? Most of the the stories had obviously some sort of an emotion or some contrast between a state versus another state where they they ended up. Those weren't uh, necessarily surprising. What surprised me is when I gave, gave these stories to various people to then read and I asked them what is it that you remember from other people's stories, you see? That's when I wanted to see what's the overlap, what stays on our minds from other people's stories naturally without you trying too hard. So two days later, after these people read the initial stories, they received a survey that asked them, what do you remember? And I asked them a subsequent question too. I said, now please try a little bit harder, exactly for this reason I'm mentioning that the brain is a cognitively lazy organ And when we are asked a question, especially if we're not immediately vested, which these people weren't, we're going to take the path of least resistance. So if I ask you, what do you remember from your last day at work? You might probably give me one or two things and not really try that hard. Is that true? Like, what do you remember from your work last week? Last week. (laughs) It's so funny. My temptation to talk about lazy was to just get the mouse and move right over to the calendar (laughs) and have it do the remembering for me. Yeah. I'm not surprised. And that's what I noticed that that was one of the initial findings is that immediately for question number two, which is what I'm asking people to please try a little bit harder. Obviously, those are more revealing answers than the original answer. So then the practical guideline that I would have for everyone listening to this is that one, make sure that if you do have a story, it comes to your audience's minds easily. 
And then you reinforce it in some way if you want to stay there for a long period of time because those surface details are going to be gone very, very quickly. We tend to stay on, on the surface when, when recollecting things, especially if the reward or if the goal for them to remember is not all that well stated or not that strong. Well, it's funny now that I'm thinking harder for your prompt. Yeah. And the first thing <laughs> that comes to mind is we had a podcast guest, Francis Cole Jones, and she sent an email out to her whole list, which had her sporting the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast t-shirt, which I've begun sending to guests as a thank you. So nice. spoiler alert, Carmen. <laughs> well, yeah. see, that's a very smart technique, by the way, because if you want to make stories more memorable and just any other type of communication more memorable, a good way to do it is to send something that would then trigger people's memories in some way when you're not even in the room. So you're doing it right. Oh, cool. Thank you. Well, I guess what I made the reason I was so memorable, it's like, well, shucks, I've sent out many, many t-shirts and, and I've seen some people post on Twitter like, hey, thanks for the shirt. This is cool. But it's like, oh, there's something quite public into the whole email list. What a treat. And just in terms of being a generous, kind, promotional move on her part that is supportive of what I'm doing over here. Congratulations. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, okay. So then, so th we talked about state changes and we, we talked about, I guess, noteworthiness is, is what I noticed. So, you know, what are some of the other ingredients that make them memorable? Yeah, we told, we're talking about the cognitive ease. So make sure that whatever you're sharing with your audiences will come to their minds easily. And, but what makes it easy versus hard? Yeah, exactly. So, because the, then we have to ask the question, well, what happens if we don't have the chance to ask somebody else to try harder to remember us, because we don't always have that luxury. And then the question still becomes what comes to people's minds just so effortlessly that they don't even have to think so hard. And um, one of the items is one that we touched upon a little bit earlier, which is this uh, strong sensory stimulation. Like, for example, there was one gentleman who contributed a story when he remembered going to Kenya to fix some electricity related uh, devices. And he was invited at this family and he had brought them a bottle of Coke. And that family, and according to their tradition, whenever you got a gift, you had to then share it with everybody else. And he remembers in details going up the hill to this hut and it was something that was built in mud, you know, those mud huts. He remembers distinctly the mother and the father and the small kid and even the grandmother that was sitting on this piece of log and she had glaucoma. And he remembers the uh, the holes in this kid's clothes that were stapled so that there wouldn't be holes anymore. But the emotion that stood um, out for him was the fact that these people only had a bottle of Coke, which they had not had for maybe a year before. And they wanted to share with him. And he didn't even like Coke. And it was a warm bottle. But yet they convinced him to drink some of it and you take a few sips and then you pass it on to the next person who also takes a few sips. And he thought that was the greatest gift he had ever received from a family who pretty much had nothing. Yes, that's powerful. And so then the Coke is right there. We got the red, we got the white visually, we've got the taste itself wrapped up in emotion. Exactly. And then you can almost see that like those holes on the clothes that are staple shut and you can see the mud hut and the way that he was expressing it was so visual that later on when I was looking at people's responses and I knew that a few of them had read his story, those details were remarked in people's responses. And that's such a luxury for anyone these days to stay on people's minds days after you have shared the stimulus. 
that's huge. And the advice then that I have for everyone listening is to look at your communication and ask how strong of a mental picture are you painting in your audience's minds? Because quite often we become forgettable simply because our communication is so darn abstract. Okay, that's excellent. And so then I'm thinking right now, as you talk about some clients working with like business process optimization, I guess that that seems pretty abstract. But if maybe we're talking about, I don't know, logistics or delivery, if you tell a story of a customer who was blown away by receiving that package, I don't know, like the very next day, and they were able to, I don't know, redecorate their house or serve a patient in the hospital, like, like something, I guess, visually that they're then doing with that product and how the speed made a difference. I'm just sort of grasping here, but I imagine that goes a lot farther than saying we're dropping our average ship time from 2.1 days to yeah. you know 1.4 days. <laughs> and you can still show both. I'm not saying that sacrifice one at the expense of another. In fact, a question that I get quite often when it comes to storytelling is, what's the difference between storytelling and facts? And we can't really approach the question that way because facts can still be part of stories. Right. Facts are, I would define them as zoomed in stories, because if I were to categorize all the findings from the research, a story is based on three components. There is a perceptive component in which uh, we can include that sensory stimulation I was uh, sharing with you. We can include a strong context because when I said Kenya, you can kind of knew where to go and we can include action across time. So all of these are perceptive things, things that you can sense with your senses. Another component is a cognitive one and facts go in there and meanings and abstracts. See, that is where business people thrive. We enjoy the facts and we enjoy extracting some conclusions from what we say. And those are great. But quite often they're at the expense of the perceptive. We don't help our audience's brains to build these strong mental pictures. And then we wonder why people forget those facts. It's because they didn't really know how to imagine those. And then the third one is, of course, the affective component, which is where emotions and motivations and aspirations would go. Okay. Well, can you give us maybe some pro tips to enhancing each of these dimensions? Yes. Yeah, so for the perceptive one, definitely go towards the language that stimulates the senses and keeps us alert. So the more you can make people see what you saw and hear what you heard and, and almost enable touching what you touched, then that stronger language will definitely reside in people's memories a lot stronger. And also for the perceptive, don't forget the action across time. You cannot have a story unless things progress across time. And in business content, hardly anything ever happens. In fact, it surprises me when people say, oh, just come to our organization and help us tell our story better. And then I'll ask, well, so what is your story? And they will say, we were founded in this year and we have this many customers and we have noticed these trends in the industry. And as a result, we have developed this amazing web architecture. You know, everybody has an amazing web architecture these days. And we have done this and this other thing, but there's nothing really in a, in a progression across time that is a mandatory component of a story. Like if we were to talk about business stories, for instance, I remember the woman who invented uh, spandex for all the uh, women listeners. I'm sure that uh, everyone has heard of the product. And when she's interviewed and you go online and you read her stories, you hear how at first she started in her own apartment and how she was trying on things in the bathroom and how she was experimenting things within the kitchen. And then she tried to get a meeting with somebody at Neiman Marcus and the meeting was going poorly until 
she convinced one of those executives to go with her to the bathroom and try this product on and under some white pants. And from then on, she wore those white pants for three years to convince many other people to buy into the product. So see how things just progress across time. First, this happened, and then this happened. And as a result, this other thing happened. So we go from A to B to C, and each is a consequence of the previous stage. And that's the mandatory component of a story. Now, so I'm interested now when it comes to like, say a business telling the story, a lot of times it's about growth. You know, we, we had this many units or this much revenue, and now we have these many units and, and these much revenue and it's much bigger. And so, but in a way, those aren't really actions. It's just sort of an output or measurement. And so how would you maybe make that translation? Yeah. So we could go from that list of facts, because if you're saying in 2016, we sold this many units. And in 2017, we sold this many units, and therefore we have grown by this percentage. That's almost kind of an action because you would have to make it show how did you get to point B as a result of point A? Was it somebody that you hired? Because imagine if you said in 2016, we sold this, and then we hired this amazing VP of sales. I mean, this guy, he used to work for such and such, and then he sold his company, And then he did some other things and then he moved to the U.S. And despite his accent, he created all these relationships and did this and this other thing. And as a result, then here we are 2017 with an increase in this to see how now you're showing how B is the result of A. Oh, certainly. Or that individual customers were so delighted that they shared stories like so-and-so from Mississippi who put this on her Facebook and sort of shares of that nature just naturally resulted in so many more people buying it. And thusly, we have this number of units now. Yeah. And you would have to be careful about showing causation, which it's a tricky thing because causation is what we would consider from a storytelling perspective, a plot. So you're saying if your customers posted such and such on Facebook and then somebody else saw it and as a result, they too purchased the product and then they went to talk to another customer and as a result of that, then this is what happened. And sometimes, especially when we deal with technology-oriented things or science-oriented products, people are so afraid of causation that they will only stick to just a list of facts, inviting the audience to draw their own conclusions. And because we were saying the audience has such a cognitively lazy inclination anyway, they may not often make that leap. So not only are you less persuasive, but you're not really sharing a story. Oh, interesting. So then the key distinction there is that you sort of be careful of causation and don't sort of say it's because of it, but share what happened. Let's see. Set me straight here, Carmen. Yeah, well, causation is sexy and tricky at the same time. Causation is what enables you to fully stay truthful to a story in the sense of A caused B, which then caused C. But then having the boldness and the, and the, <laughs> and the accuracy to make a causation statement, that's where it's at. All right. You have what it takes to stand behind your causation. That's the question I would ask anyone listening. Because, for example, some of my clients are from the biotech industry. And when they try to sell a specific product to a a doctor's office, they have to be cautious about saying, you will get this product. And as a result, for sure, this is is what's going to happen. I hear you. So you don't say it. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you always have to share a story, by the way. So if that's your field and you're afraid of causation, you don't necessarily have to go there, but then don't claim you're telling stories. Okay. So it's just about saying that it caused it as opposed to sharing 
a sequence of events that imply it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right, I'm with you. Track it along, cool, thank you. Okay, so then how about the affective component? Yeah, so the cognitive we have no problems with because facts and abstracts definitely dominate. For the affective component, I think one of the, uh, the biggest insights that I got from the study were that just having the presence of the emotion still does not guarantee memory. Sometimes that's another statement that I hear made very frequently. Oh, if you want to have something memorable and especially a memorable story, you definitely have to always have emotion. Not true. For instance, people will say, oh, stories like 9-11 or the Space Challenger disaster or Oklahoma bombing. Those, of course, will be memorable. Not that fast. For example, in some of the groups that I had uh, designed in my study, people read a 9-11 story. People read Space Challenger story, but they also read stories like, I will never forget the time when my coworker complimented me on LinkedIn. It was just such a touchy message. I had posted this and then they reacted like that. And then I said this, and that just meant a lot to me in my career, something along those lines. Or I will never forget my cousin's wedding because this is what happened. And those things were a lot more memorable than the world's history story, so to speak, even though the emotion was not as strong, but it was more relatable, you see. So if you ever have the choice and you're looking at your content and you're thinking, boy, my content is kind of dry. I could never match the emotion of of a disaster or something that just happened. Everybody paid attention to it. Don't even worry about it because relevance quite often trumps emotion. Okay. Interesting. So could you maybe help us tie this all together in terms of maybe sharing a couple examples of messages or stories transformed sort of before from one of your clients, and then you did some tweaks and reframing and communicating it differently to an after that had such greater impact and memorability? Well, let's look at this one that I'm working on uh, this week, and it's not finalized, but I think all of our listeners are going to be able to relate to it. So the before version comes across like this. Welcome, everyone. We've had an interesting and challenging 2017. It's prompting me to uh, remember why is it that I'm working at this place anyway. And I've worked here because of some professional opportunities that we all have. It's also the right timing because the technologies uh, that are happening in the field are just at the right intersection. And so it goes and so it goes from fact to fact to fact to fact which is just a zoomed-in story, as we said. The recommendations that I'm making and the after example is going to include something along the lines, okay, we have had a challenging 2017 and it's prompting me to reflect why am I working at this company? Well, it's a wonderful professional opportunity. What do I mean by this? I remember a time when I was looking for the intersection of just the right technologies and I was working for this company and this other executive walked in and he said this to me. And then that's how I reacted. And that's when I realized that things were a little bit different. And then I read this other article and see how I'm going with this is what's happening. And the more I zoom in and the sensory details are stronger and he's even showing pictures of his older uh, executive office. So we can see him working for that company as he moved to another company. So now it becomes more sensory intense. And things that happen and then cause another thing and they cause another thing. And now we can abstract it out and say it was a great professional opportunity. Or in the initial, let's call it story between quotes, he's talking about coming to work to this company because he wanted to work with people he could trust. Notice how abstract that is. But in the after version, I'm prompting him to say, 
So who is that? So he's showing some other guy's picture and how he served as a best man at his wedding. So we're killing two birds with that stone because not only is he now showing some sensory stimulation that's stronger because I enjoy seeing the pictures of the wedding and the champagne and people dancing, but the emotion is now present because it's one thing to say, I'm working here with people that I can trust and it's just an abstract concept, but another to see them hugging and see them in their suits and see them in such a nice human-like moment. Oh, I really like that. And so you're bringing up the usage of visuals, of slides, which I think could really be helpful because I think sometimes I might feel perhaps a little bit awkward going too big and using my words to try to paint an imagery picture like, oh, someone fancies himself a novelist over there, dude. (laughs) Whereas you could say, and he was the best man at my wedding. And then you show an image and they go, oh, that's the wedding. And so then you can go a long way by bringing those visuals in, even of the desk, of the workplace, of the wedding. So true. And the nice thing about being able to do that is then obviously those pictures are also going to add the extra words that are even unspoken. So you can get a lot more done in a shorter period of time. Yes. Well, I was going to go there next in terms of trying to make an impact with a story. I think that's a concern. Someone might say, you know what, I've got exactly three minutes or five minutes of time to make these points. I don't have time to go down and make a story, especially with all of these impactful, you know, affective details that you're describing. So what are some of the ways to get some of that goodness in a shorter period of time. One is by using visuals or slides. Any other tips there? I really like that question because you're so right. People are concerned that they don't have enough time to share stories. And for any of our listeners who are married and sometimes they get their spouse's reactions, like, come on, get to the point. I don't have time for all of these, all of these details. <laughs> I've and, never said that. <laughs> One year well, in, I've managed to not say that. just means they got married. You just give it a few years. Okay. <laughs> But executives and some other business audiences may have a similar reaction, just get to the point. And so one of the ways that if you still want to share a story, but you're afraid that you don't have enough time, the advice would be to earn the right to tell the details. And the way to do that is to respond first to people's expectations. And if we said facts are just zoomed in stories, and if your audiences are indeed expecting facts at first, then give those first. So if I'm presenting to some executives and they do want to hear about the growth that has happened in the past two years and they want to see them some charts, that's my intro. I'm not going to start with, it was a dark and stormy night and the clouds were just approaching and uh, I knew something drastic was going to happen, you see? But if I share with you the right amount of uh, information that you expect, then I'm earning the rights for a few more minutes of some other details. And then I can say the reason that we got to these numbers is because of that one dark stormy night when you'd not believe what happened. So as a communicator, you're a choreographer of your audience's expectations. Feed those first, and then you earn the right for a few extra minutes where you can feel in the details that will make it a story. Oh, that's excellent. Very good. Any other perspectives on the time perspective? Uh, yes. So obviously time would be correlated with the length of a story. What I noticed in my study was that there is such a thing as too short of a story beyond which it becomes forgettable. And the length that I noticed for people that they remember stories, the sweet spot was somewhere around 600 words. 
which would be about two or three paragraphs. And I would always suggest that if you want to have a memorable story, write it down first and then make sure that you say it verbally so that you don't sound as if you're too scripted. You still speak it. It's not a story meant for writing. But 600 to about 900 words if you want to uh, be a really polished storyteller, because otherwise you won't be having the opportunity to do justice to a context or to those sensory details or build some of those emotions in there. Oh, now, Carmen, I love it when you drop a number. That's intriguing. So 600 to 900 words is a sweet spot there. Uh, We were talking about memory and stories and memorability and this good stuff. Are there any other kind of key rules of thumb or numbers that leap to mind? Yeah, let's look at this concept of emotion just a little bit uh, more closely because I think it's so widely misunderstood when it comes to memory. Emotion, when your content is concerned, can come from three sources. It can come from the nature of the content because if you're talking about uh, medicine or people in Kenya, immediately the nature of the content draws an emotion. But sometimes in business, we don't have the luxury of that. We talk about, like you said, trucks or web architectures or predictive analytics. Sometimes there isn't a whole lot of emotion inherently associated with our content. So then what do you do? Because you still need some emotion to make something memorable. And the other two sources can be your audience can be a source of emotion. So if you're talking to people who are extremely vested in a topic, who are either elated or upset, they bring their own emotions that then contribute to the formation of some memories. Or you can be the source of emotion as the transmitter of that message. For example, I was listening to these people talk about the predictive analytics a few months back, and they were the most excited about this product and this technology that I had ever seen. I could have listened to those guys go on forever about predictive analytics. So as you're pondering your own question, your own content, question the chemistry that you have with your own content, because when that chemistry is there, then you can be the source of emotion and immediately you're going to have an increased chance at memory. That's excellent. Well, Carmen, tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about your favorite things? Oh, my favorite things. (laughs) Uh, Let's see, uh, anything related to memory? Since we're talking about emotion, another reminder that I would have for our listeners is that What we remember is not necessarily the emotion itself, but we remember quite often the transition from one emotional state to another. And the sharper the contrast, the stronger the emotion. So for example, let's just say that I uh, shared with you that I fell off a bike, and obviously that's a negative emotion. But then if I said, I fell off the bike and then got run over by a car, (laughs) see how you reacted. And that's when the memory got formed because the first one, yeah, I had some emotion, but the sharper the contrast between two emotional states that you're creating for your audiences, then the stronger the memory. That's potent. It's so funny. I was, I was imagining that you were going to contrast by going to something really happy, and, but you just went no, to no. extra, extra bad. <laughs> Yes, you can go positive and then double positive. Like if I said, I went to Vegas and I won 50 bucks and then I pressed the button and next I won 50 million, that you probably created a memory just now because you went just super, super, super happy. But then you can go the other way of negative to quadruple negative. And that's how memories are formed. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? 
a favorite quote. Let's just see. Just the other day, I saw this thing on the internet, and you know we believe everything that we read on the internet. But this quote just really resonated with me. It said, you have survived 100% of your worst days. You're doing great. Oh, that is nice. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Ooh, let's see. A favorite book that I just bought and just started reading is called Supercasting. I'm intrigued by this notion that the brain is constantly on, on fast forward, as you can imagine, and some people can predict better than others. What gets us to be better predictors? When you say predict, you mean just in terms of what is going to happen next in your environment? Exactly. Oh, intriguing. Thank you. Yeah. And how about a favorite tool? Oh, a tool. I have to admit that someone just ordered the iPhone 10. And they returned it. So that's not going to be a favorite tool. I'm, I'm curious as to why that happened. I do like this flashlight that I just got that has different settings depending on how dark or still kind of almost light it is outside. Have you seen those flashlights? So it's sensing the environment and, and adjusting its light? Yeah, yeah. Small things. It's a small pleasures. <laughs> nice. Thank you. Then how about a favorite habit? A favorite habit is hiking at the end of a full workday. Beautiful. In search of a beautiful view. Because you can't just be hiking. You have to hike with a purpose. All right. And is there a particular nugget you've been sharing recently at Mimsy that seems to really be connecting and resonating with your clients? Uh, a particular... Just something that you say or share in your work with clients? Oh, yes. There is uh, the line that people seem to resonate with and remember is this notion that uh, as we are exposed to content, we forget about 90% of that stimulation. So it's important to control the 10% they remember. So that has become a favorite mantra. And quite often when people come back to me and they talk to me, they'll say, let me share with you what my 10% message is to my own clients. And that warms my heart because uh, when they mention that phrase, what is my 10% or my 10% message is, then uh, I know I'm able to stay on their minds. And that's the challenge that I share with all of the, our listeners today. What is your 10%? And are you in control of that? And Carmen, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Memzy.com, M-E-M-Z-Y. And the Twitter handler is um, at Are You Memorable? And uh, of course, LinkedIn, Carmen Simon. I'd love to stay in touch. And I would want to hear um, what is your 10% message that you want to put on other people's minds. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yes, uh, the challenge would be that of precision because we cannot ultimately control everything that goes on on people's minds. And sometimes we want to overshare. So I would say don't attempt to get people to remember more, but get them to remember less and better. Beautiful. Well, Carmen, this has been a whole lot of fun all over again. Thank you and good luck with Mimsy and all you're up to. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pete. You do the same. I really appreciated Carmen's insight that relatable emotions are more powerful than strong emotions. And it makes sense when she says it, but it was counterintuitive for me originally. And so I think that's pretty handy. If you think, well, I don't have anything really dramatic, it's okay. You don't need it so long as you have something that folks really connect to. So I hope you dug that and some of the other perspectives. If you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the items mentioned and their links, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F237. And if you haven't already, I hope you push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest. It is Anne Demaray talking about what makes for a fantastic first impression. So I hope to catch you there. Peace. 
Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.